Chapter 8 Tim never said anything about my new pattern of drinking during the course of my state senate campaign. Not when I would come home later than I had promised, smelling like a bar. Not when I started the daily habit of relaxing on the couch at home with two, then three beers after an evening of walking door to door. The routine of reading or playing games with my daughters in the evenings was replaced with a drink or three instead. What should he have said? Now I was done with that campaign. It was over. I decided that I was going to divorce my husband. I can't pinpoint the moment I knew I was going to end our marriage, but by the end of the campaign, I knew Tim couldn't give me the life that I had just spent the past year sampling, and I wanted it. I was sure of that. I didn't talk about my decision with anyone, least of all Tim, but I knew it. I lost in November 2006, and by December, I'd gotten the highest paying job I'd ever had to sell textbooks for Pearson. I started on the first weekday after New Year's January 2007. Within a few days, I was headed to the national sales meeting in Phoenix. The sales team all drank copiously and gregariously. When I got back from Phoenix, I continued to go out with them after work, but I couldn't very easily sell this socializing to my husband and kids as part of my job, the way I could during the campaign as mom's important work. I told Tim I was moving out, but that it was a trial separation. I just needed some time and space, I said. But when I got my own apartment in March 2007, I knew I wouldn't be back. When I left him after 17 years of marriage, my model for relationships was my mother's model. When she didn't know what else to do, she bailed out. She cut off relationships. She kicked people out of her home. She quit jobs. She abandoned anything that could keep her from escaping. That's how I approached the divorce. Facing the shame I felt about my own behavior in our marriage, setting boundaries or being honest, didn't even occur to me as real options. Maybe I knew these things on an intellectual level. I had certainly absorbed something about marriage and honesty in my professional training as a therapist, but my behavior pattern with Tim was set. I wasn't emotionally mature enough to endure the shame or set the boundaries. My relationship with Tim made me feel stuck, and I had grown tired of the mundanity of our life for a long time before I started my Senate run. I loved my kids, but I had never been satisfied by the day-to-day -day labor of caretaking, especially when they were small. Setting it all to one side for a few months felt like a relief to me. Working toward the goal of winning the race, a goal that had nothing to do with my family, gave me an escape. When it was over, I couldn't go back. Tim was passive in our relationship, but he also had qualities that I didn't appreciate until after our divorce was final and I was engaged to another man in 2008. Tim was kind. He was a good dad to our kids. He was supportive, but he didn't seem to want us to go anywhere else as life partners. And I didn't know how to tell him I found our stasis stifling or what he would have said if I had, so I didn't tell him anything at all. As for the kids, they were teenagers wrapped up in their friends and peer relationships. I wanted to give them space to individuate, a space I never had growing up with Clotine. I rationalized that they were fine without me anyway. 
Throughout the campaign, when I wasn't home, evening after evening, I noticed that their world didn't fall apart. Tim and the girls functioned great without me, I told myself. Tim picked up the slack. Everyone got to school and got home and ate and got to bed. They didn't need me, I said to myself. But that was all bullshit. I was giving myself excuses that enabled me to be on my own more so I could drink as much as I wanted without fear of discovery or judgment. Without a husband and kids who all knew what I had been like before I started to drink, it was easier for me to deny how obsessed I'd become with drinking. I wanted to hide from them, but I couldn't even admit that to myself. The truth? I was the one who needed space, even though I told myself my daughters did. At the time, the compulsion to drink went hand in hand with my compulsion for my own space. I couldn't deny my need anymore. I wanted to build a new life. I wanted them in my life, but I also wanted to date. I wanted to find another man who was nothing like Tim. I wanted things that I had missed out on by getting married at 19. I wanted to go out into this world and party. I know it was all the more painful for both my kids because my behavior changed all throughout their high school years. I was becoming a mom they didn't recognize and didn't respect. They were angry with me, and I can't blame them. They couldn't understand my decision to leave their dad. Even before then, when I opened the store and when I ran my campaign, I based so many decisions on what I wanted to do not on trying to find a fulfilling combination of what I wanted to do and what would have been best for them. They fought me, then they avoided me, and I rationalized too much of it away as normal teenage individuating. I had met Tim when I was a teenager myself. He helped me make my escape from a life with Clotine permanent. A relationship with Tim brought with it a whole family and a Catholic community things for me to belong to. And I took that chance with him. But 20 years later, with two teen girls, a bachelor's, a master's, a failed business, and a state senate run all behind me, I wanted to party. So I did. We worked out a joint custody arrangement where I had my kids every other week. I left almost my entire life behind me. The house, the extended family, my identity as a mom in a family, and it felt like an escape. My drinking escalated during the weeks without my kids. I believed my drinking was under control because I didn't get drunk when my kids were around. But before long, I just timed my level of intoxication with the time I could expect them to go to bed. Then I'd be up for a few more hours drinking before I passed out. I picked up a six-pack or a bottle of wine every night. I was sowing wild oats, meeting men out for drinks and sometimes sleeping with them, having fun. After the separation, I was unreliable and impulsive. I was selfish. Of course, I could have engaged in all those behaviors and still not have been an alcoholic. But I was becoming preoccupied with opportunities to drink. A drink to relax a drink while cooking, a drink during dinner, a drink with a guy, drinks with coworkers. Drinking had become the way to do this new life, normal, not a problem. 
And I know it hurt my kids, although they never confronted me about my drinking or my behavior. I married my second husband, Pete, in August 2008, a year and a half after I'd moved out and six months after my divorce from their father was final. We organized our honeymoon as a family vacation with Pete's kids and my kids coming with us. It was on this trip that my back began to hurt, big time. Within a month of getting married, I had emergency back surgery, which was followed by another major surgery three months later. I was managing my pain with opioids and fentanyl patches and alcohol. In the fall of 2008, between my first and second back surgeries, my girls took care of me. They put my shoes on for me. They did our grocery shopping, except for alcohol. Pete made sure we always had wine in the fridge. I was an invalid. Even after the second surgery in 2009, which took months of recovery, I couldn't attend any of their school functions. My older daughter, Barbara, had learned how to drive, and she would drive her sister Rachel to work or to her piano lessons. Rachel got her license as soon as she was eligible. I never had a problem giving them the keys to my car because it meant I didn't have to go anywhere. My back eventually got better, but my drinking continued to progress. I was waking up in the morning, looking at the clock, and saying to myself, I hardly got anything done yesterday. I'll skip drinking today. Then I would work furiously throughout the day until I ran out of gas. Exhausted by 5 p.m., I rewarded all of my hard work that day with just one glass of wine, then two, and so on. It took years for that 5 p.m. marker to move to 4 p.m., and then 3, and eventually 11.30 in the morning. Eventually, the timing of my start no longer mattered. Drinking had become the center of my attention no matter what time it was. The central position of alcohol in my life was subtle. When I opened my eyes each morning, I asked myself, what do I need to get done today? The remainder of that question was implied. What do I need to get done today before I can have my first drink? After all, I wanted to be productive, but the bar for getting stuff done kept getting lower. I accomplished less and less until afternoons consisted mostly of pacing in front of the living room window with a glass of wine or beer. Everything in my life became about drinking, including dealing with the consequences of drinking. I'd forget what I had said, but my husband or my kids would still be angry with me for having said it. I'd forget to show up to an appointment or miss a deadline. I'd rotate the stores where I bought my alcohol, alternating between supermarkets and smaller grocery stores and liquor stores because I didn't want any of the cashiers to raise an eyebrow. If it was Thursday or Friday, I might tell the cashier, we're having a party this weekend, even though she hadn't asked. If we were planning on going out for dinner, I made sure to steer us clear of Cracker Barrel or Bob Evans or fast food restaurants. I would say I didn't like the food at those places, but it wasn't about the food. Going to a restaurant that didn't serve alcohol would interfere with the opportunity to drink. The closest either of my daughters came to confronting me was when Barbara uninvited me from her high school graduation party in 2011 years after I had become dependent on alcohol. At the time, I was completely shocked. 
What do you mean? I whined to her on the phone when she told me not to come. I'm your mother. I'll just come anyway. Please don't do that, she said. When I pressed her for an explanation, she told me Tim's siblings and the extended Kreider family weren't over our divorce. She said she didn't want to be caught in the middle. I was so angry with Tim, so good at playing the martyr, I thought. But when I called him to demand an explanation, he told me he had no problem with me coming to the party. It's her, he said, leaving the entire thing at Barbara's feet. I knew he was telling me the truth. She had made the decision on her own. I had lost her. I recognized that feeling of being done with my mom, and I felt so sad about it. But I didn't know what to do. When I looked back at her high school years, I could only see the problems I had created. I didn't see my alcoholism as the source of those problems. I believed I was done parenting. They had so many activities, so many friends, but I was abandoning them, leaving them to sort through their feelings about a separation and divorce they couldn't have seen coming. After the phone call with Tim, I left it there. I attended her graduation, didn't attend the party, and we never discussed it again. I decided to leave Tim in 2007, and that was the right decision, but I handled it all wrong. My girls were 15 and 13, and I believed I was done being a mom. I betrayed them. From 2008 to 2011, I remarried twice, twice in three years. My daughters felt like they didn't know me. Before I started drinking, I had been married to their dad for 17 years. Getting married was my version of a geographic cure. I wasn't in a position to move across the country to escape my problems, or I would have. Instead, I switched husbands. Once I left him, every time my life felt out of control, I started dating a new man. The only problem with the geographic cure and my serial monogamy version of it is that it's not a cure at all. Alcoholics take themselves with them when they move. So did I. I brought myself with me into each relationship, into each of my next two marriages. I shook up my life again to get rid of what I had created, just like Clotine had every time she moved apartments, every time she quit. But just as it had for her, the Etch-a-Sketch filled up again with a mess of lines that led nowhere and depicted nothing. I needed to drink, but I didn't think I needed to drink. I just drank with the quantity and frequency creeping up slowly enough that my dependency on alcohol could continue to feel normal. It had become a reflex. Leave, bail out, abandon, cut off relationships. Don't let anyone or anything stop you from going. Clotine's disease was schizophrenia. Mine was alcoholism. My brain chose alcohol over doing the difficult work of facing the shame I felt about leaving. There was no one left in my life that would confront me with the truth about my drinking. By 2011, I was married to my third husband, Mark. My older daughter, Barbara, was in college, and my younger daughter, Rachel, was in her senior year of high school. That year, I voluntarily gave up my custody rights, and Rachel never lived with us. We didn't even have a discussion about whether she would live with us half-time until she called me one week after my third spinal surgery in June 2011. 
She was wondering if she should start staying over every other week. So am I just living with dad now, she asked. I told her it just made sense that she would stay with her dad, as if I was just doing what was best for her. After all, my second ex-husband, Pete, was stalking me, and I was living with Mark on the other side of town from her dad's house. Better to live with dad full time. That's how far I was willing to go. I gave that up. I gave her up in the last year of childhood. At the time, I told myself we were all on the same page. She was relieved not to have to play house with me and yet another husband she didn't know. Mark didn't want her to live with us. Neither did Tim. I told myself I didn't want to make her live with us. My marriage to Mark was chaotic, and his home was so cluttered and dirty that most people would have considered it unlivable. I wouldn't admit it at the time, but I felt shame. I didn't want her to have to witness my home life. But ultimately, I chose to be with a man who would look the other way when I drank, instead of my daughter, who wouldn't have put up with my drunkenness. She would have said something about my drinking, and we would have fought. I didn't want the fight. I was too fragile to face even the possibility of a moment of that, too committed to denial and alcohol. So I gave up joint custody. Then I minimized and justified my decision so that I could keep drinking. I remember somewhere around this time, drunk dialing my other daughter, Barbara, and carrying on about something or other. After a few minutes, she cut me off. Have you been drinking, she asked. No, I responded, clutching my imaginary pearls. Why would you say that? 